Hi, this is Andy Brewer with Northwest AHEC, and here we're at the Health Insights in Northwest North Carolina podcast, and I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Pedrag Glogorovich. Um, he is the director of the Electrocompulsive Therapy Program at Wake Forest Baptist Health, and I am thrilled to have him here in our inaugural podcast um, for this new venture we're doing. So welcome. Thank you so very, very, very much. And really, it's my honor and pleasure to be here. And to be honest, I did not know this will be an inaugural one. So this is actually even a bigger occasion. And I'm really even more honored to be here as a first guest. Well, glad you are and welcome. So I'm going to jump right in and tell me um, how in the world did you end up in Winston-Salem from... from uh, Serbia. Wow, that's that's a long story. Actually, I'm not sure that this one hour will cover that, but I will <laughs> do my very best to to do that. I I finished my medical school uh, in Belgrade, Serbia, and that was we went to different programs six years. After that, we we had a required internship, and through whole of my career as a medical student, I was expecting that I would be a researcher. So I got some scholarship, traveled to Oxford, England, uh, working in different labs. I really thought I will never be a clinician. But, of course, we do not know what life you have in, in a sleeve for us. So I ended up coming to United States in 99, actually almost exactly 20 years ago. Uh, finished my residency in psychiatry in West Virginia. Chose to go to, med- well, actually was required to go to medically underserved area, but chose to go to Rocky Mountains and end up living in Pocatello, Idaho, uh, of all places on the world, for seven years, and I enjoyed it. That was a wonderful experience. I was medical director. I started, I came as a medical director, and my program did not have ECT service there, so I Started one ECT service, started one more ECT service, became only ECT provider in state of Idaho and start really having uh, people coming for 50, 60, 100 miles, 200 miles to come and receive service. And, and uh, life was really going well and great and fantastic until one day Dr. Vaughn McCall, who was a previous chair of psychiatry at Wake Forest and also director of ECT service and also editor of International ECT Journal, sent me private email and said, then we have opening for ECT director at Wake Forest University. For somebody in the world of ECT, Wake Forest is a superpower. Wake Forest is the place to be. Uh, for for a couple of minutes at that time, I still remember I was sitting reading that email almost thinking, is it possible? Then they asked me to become director of ECT at Wake Forest. That was like dream come true. So I think I agree with Dr. McCall in maybe six minutes, maybe five. That's probably one of those shortest job interviews ever. It's like, yeah, of course I will come. I don't think I even ask, you know, do you guys pay or this is just honorary <laughs> function? You know, is it just just that good and I just need to show up and everything will be fine? So short, short time after that, I came here and became director of ECT program and, and really enjoy since. Oh, good. Well, um, tell me a little bit about growing up. When's the first memory you had of, or the first thing that happened in your life that made you want to go into the medical field? Oh, that's that's a hard one. Um, I'm a little biased. Both of my parents are physicians. So 
that was kind of in some way expected to go in that direction. But uh, my sister is a lawyer. She, she always liked to say that then somebody in the family need to be intellectual, you know, not just physicians like, like the rest of us. So I don't know, since young age, I kind of knew that I'm in some way groomed to, to go in that direction and always really made made uh, sense. And I always saw myself and, and maybe I was not sure I would be a psychiatrist, but I kind of always knew I would be a physician. And, and for some reason, as, as probably I kind of grew, that psychiatry became more and more... Uh, my choice and kind of better fit and i think that's something what what is wonderful in a field of medicine then you kind of as you grow you're finding something where really your quality your fits your your personal preference is becoming more important and 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 becoming really in tune with what you're practicing what you're preaching what you're doing now um your teaching faculty is that correct? yes i am i am Net- I'm director of uh, psychiatry of psychiatry clerkship for last four years, and that was probably the most impressive experience I had at at Wake Forest. I I was asked or called to to help with this position at a time when when psychiatry clerkship did not do as as well for different reason. Department did not work as well, and it was some organizational issues. So as every at that time, young person, I came and tried to reorganize everything from upside down and that downside up and left to right and right to left, where we do our lectures, how we do lectures, who is doing lecture, which lectures. We really change it significantly. And like everything else, those things bring bring some risks. And I'm very glad that that risk was well received by students and they like what they did, our our grades really significantly improved from student evaluation, then student scores improved significantly, then we have significant increase in number of students applying for psychiatry, which I think is probably the most important of those. Our scores are just kind of daily daily measurements, but really shaping somebody's future and opening opening him whole new doors and showing him beauty of, of something what you're doing and really ability to, to help with somebody's uh, career. So I think that was the most amazing things which happened. So, And we became most improved clerkship. Then we got, I think, best clinical score clerkship, then most professional and best professionalism. And and I really hope that this year we will even have more awards. It's not announced, but I'm keeping my eye on those. Oh, great. Well, tell me a little bit, or maybe I should rephrase that. Mm-hmm. Compare and contrast today's medical education compared to when you were in med school. In my, in my time, you know, we talk about four fluids and how the... No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm not that old. It's uh, it's a different, definitely. It's uh, I think I can we can we can see that in in both ways as a good and as a bad. Uh, good in a way that students are way more involved in their own education. The students want to be much stronger participants. Then it's not just ex cathedra lectures which are served to them. And uh, I think then it's much more hands-on. Then it's much more interactions. Then it's much more cases. Then it's different way how that is provided. On other side, uh, medicine whole field of medicine is is apprenticeship. You're working with physician and you're learning from him, uh, 
from the cases and between the cases. You're learning the small skills of the trade, how you talk to nurses, how you participate in interdisciplinary teams, how you do that, how uh, how you make your phone calls to the family, how you make the small uh, small chit chats with uh, uh, with technicians on the unit, how you smoke with the valet parking, how you do lots of things. And and I think that's something that we unfortunately do not giving as much value to that. Uh, I think that our students are probably much smarter than we are in time when we started med school. Just much more information, just more exposures, all kinds of knowledge. But I think we need to help them with those tricks of the trade. And because if we do not teach them those things, we'll be very hard to be good practitioner. Because practicing medicine, it's lots of our knowledge, lots of hard work and education, but also lots of self-governance and working as a team member and being part of the big healthcare team, which are now even more complex than ever before. How have you seen uh, technology both help and hinder your role as a faculty, as a teacher, as an instructor in today's medical education? You know, technology, especially if you talk about technology in the medical field, we had the medical notes and note writing is a skill which we, which started in 30s, you know, 100 years ago and really did not change much till 2000s because medical records was not really necessary to change that. Then for probably 10 years, we tried to use absolutely same notes just to speed them up for some 30% using medical records and and pre-populated fields. Now we're kind of going to different directions, trying to change the thought process, how the note is generated, how it's done. And then it's a question, did we, older people, trained in the old way kind of understand that? Or are we just trying to speed up our process? Because lots of physicians feel then, then that all those nuances change way how we treat patients, how we do with patients. And also patients do not appreciate every single time when they come to your office and they just see your half profile or your back while you're sitting and typing on a computer. Patient did not seem to came to your office to see you type. He came to talk to you to be examined to understand what is going on. So we need to also re re-examine is note is really helping us in helping our patient patient uh, interactions or in some ways not. So it's I think the truth is somewhere in the middle. Now that you mentioned patients, I want to ask you. Getting towards our region of uh, you know, North Carolina here in the Northwest area, what are some of the challenges and changes that you've seen since you started practicing medicine in the uh, afflictions, if you will, that affect people in this region? And what are some of the challenges and, and things, the trends that you've seen over the years? Unfortunately, healthcare. We need to really see healthcare as a business because it's not just healthcare as a as a calling or as a profession or my life choice. It's it's also business where employ thousands and thousands of people. Just our institution have eighteen, nineteen thousand employees. You know, that's that's a small city. Uh, it's uh, becoming different with changes in insurance. People do not have insurance. People have extremely high co-pays. Uh, people are not able to choose best treatments which are available for them due to financial strains. So so it's not really, we of course, we are trained and we want to do what is best for the patient. And then we're coming to that question, can patient afford that? 
Or can we afford to do that? Can Is patient able to, to follow all that? And, and sometimes maybe we are not able to provide as good care as we wish and we know and we are equipped to do because we cannot find a proper financial way to support that. Either the patient lack of insurance or some extremely high co-pays or complete lack of finances. And that really put medicine in slightly different ethical dilemma. You know, if you are in in, in any other different uh, calling or, or profession, I think ethical dilemma are not as, as pronounced. You know, if, if you are lawyer and somebody show up in your office and said, oh, I would love to work with you, but I do not have money to pay, you will not have ethical dilemma and nobody will be really concerned about that. But if somebody come to my office and said, I do not feel right and I'm concerned and I will hurt myself, I really cannot say, you know, you do not have insurance and I cannot see you. Yeah, so it becomes a moral as well as ethical. It is, and it is, and we just hold ourselves to higher standards, and we need to continue doing that mm-hmm. because that's why we chose this profession, to help people and to hold ourselves to slightly higher standards. What about population trends as far as the things that you see patients for? Have you noticed anything newer in the last few years uh, as opposed to in the yeah, past? I'm I'm a generalized adult psychiatrist. I have some training also in, in, in addiction medicine. I've been prescribing some Suboxone and uh, buprenorphine and for the last well, 12 years now. And also that's part of, of my practice. And now with increase in opioid epidemics through the whole nation and, of course, us being part of Appalachian, we are very, very engaged into that. I'm very pleased and I have a wonderful group of workers and co-workers I'm working with in our addiction medicine uh, center with uh, uh, Dean Melton, Terry Cook, and uh, David uh, Burns. You know, those are fantastic counselors. And of course, we have a group of physicians who then we helping them and really working alongside. And I think we're doing lots of good things because, for example, just for opiates, we are insisting on prescribing medications which can help with medically-assisted treatment with counseling because we think that counseling is equally important part of getting better. Just giving medication will not be enough. On the other side, we, we also have uh, Dr. Margaret Ruxtalas, who was very involved, uh, Dr. Heather Douglas, Dr. Munjal, Dr. Kimball, you know, Dr. Uh, really people who, who stepped up and did fantastic job because, because we needed that. Mm-hmm. We just community needed that, and we, we was able to provide that. Mm. Well, from your conversations with patients, um, is there, and, and from a personal mm-hmm. standpoint, where, what do you think the real issue is? Why are we seeing this this epidemic the way we are, and especially in regards to our region? Whew, that's that's a very that's a very hard question and even harder answer. You know, it's not it's not something what started overnight. Started probably in eighties where we added in VA uh, pain as a fifth vital sign. Uh, of course, it's done in best intentions. And lots of things are done with absolutely best intentions. We just start asking more about pain, start insisting that patients will be pain-free, putting expectation that you will have major surgery and then you will be pain-free, then something will happen and you will be pain-free and pain-free. And, 
And unfortunately, as all of us know, as we age, you know, pain-free is not really the, <laughs> the way how we live, you know. You wake up in the morning and something ache here and something ache there and it's a little bit sore there. So we cannot expect really pain-free living, especially not in, in, in lots of patients who go through serious medical conditions. That, of course, caused to higher and higher number of prescriptions, which was prescribed for pain. And unfortunately, as all physicians become more and more time constrained, you know, then you have very short times to sit with to sit with patient, talk to them, discuss. It's mu- unfortunately it's much shorter to agree and sign the new prescription versus to said no, I will not prescribe you this medication because one, two, three, four, five, six, and seven, and have discussion for twenty minutes why it's not good to do pain medications and why it's better to go through through something else, why it's better to go through physical therapy, why we need to have a short terms, why can that be done. Mm-hmm. But but unfortunately, if you if you do not have time, if you're stretched from stress from every other direction, and you have seven other patients sitting there, it's very hard to put your foot down and said no, 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 no. We cannot do that. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. one by one, that is kind of the new generated more and more patient. Then of course, stop the act is brought with intentions, of course, to decrease that. So all of a sudden you're having the whole group of people who used to get prescriptions for, from their physicians for years and years, all of a sudden finding themselves in some very unlikely places in back alleys buying fentanyls and buying drugs from buying drugs from people who are definitely not the good people and not knowing how to use that drugs. Mm-hmm. So that, of course, caused much higher numbers of accidental overdoses about that, People who nobody suspected to have problems all of a sudden end up in the in a small obituary in the news. Yeah. And definitely, it's a real problem which hurting every community, but unfortunately, hurting our triad community very, very high. Now, I want to switch gears a little bit. Well, let me put in a plug first. We have several uh, opioid um, tapering and medication-assisted therapy programs at Northwest AHEC, both online and classroom. So, um, check out our website at nwahec.org for those things. We are. Really super happy and, and, and honored to have Julie Kirk and Dr. Spengler who did wonderful, 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 wonderful website. And, and I will strongly recommend everyone to, to watch that and learn from that. It's really wonderful piece of, of uh, knowledge put in such easy format. So once again, thank you, AHAC, for supporting that. That was money very well spent. I want to switch gears again um, back to Serbia. I'm, I'm curious, do you see any similarities from where you grew up to this area of the world? I grew up in Belgrade, Serbia. It used to be capital of, of Yugoslavia. Now it's capital of Serbia. It's maybe two million people. Uh, it's urban, uh, uh, more more East Coast, like New Yorkish kind of mm-hmm. not too much trees, not too much... Not too much greenery, you know. We will have a tree on the, you know, third corner for me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> we had more. Uh, uh, it's a different, of course. Uh, country went through transition, become more westernized or modernized as now. So people also work more. It's less family time. It's more paid activities, less the friendship as used to be. You know, so when most of us grew up, we will spend more time outside and planning, playing soccer or basketball with your friends and be outside or ride bicycles all day long but of course that's changed here too mm-hmm. you know it's it's i think it's time it's not just changing where i grew up or or, or not 
probably biggest difference medication uh, medicine wise or training wise was that most of our training was done uh, on a very Austro-Hungarian system with very strong hierarchy with very strong uh, way what is the distance between uh, student to intern from intern to resident to inter to resident to assistant professor from assistant professor to to uh, to a full professor to dean of the medical school and uh, you know for example when when full professor will enter the room all of us uh, residents and assistant professor and associates will stand up and he will keep standing till he's in the room so it's a just different Mm-hmm. That that way, and then of course you come here and you have Dr. Julie Freischler, who you know introduced herself as a Julie, and and she's just fine with that. So so I think it's a it's a different in that way. Right. So there's the old old school decorum, but there's still kind of a need. Well, I'll ask you: Is there still a place for that hierarchy of? knowledge and expertise and and things and and it, we you know we have this focus on interprofessional and and interdisciplinary teams and things like that um is there still a place for that old school you know uh, absolutely we have a team team is let's use football team we have football team which need to in a case to win football team need to have running backs and quarterback and need to have uh, need to have defensive end and offensive end, and all of us have different different roles. Uh, for us to win as a team, all of us need to play our roles well. So my team is as good as as my offensive end or my defensive end. If they do not play their job well, my team will lose. So healthcare team is absolutely the same. All of us have the roles, and physician have his role, and he need to do his role well. And if nurse, the nurse need to do her role well, and pharmacist need to do his role well, and social worker, and transporter, and everyone. So you know, if you have the best possible surgeon on the on the world working for Wake Forest and waiting in operating room to to come and and operate on the patient, and transporter for some reason did not do his job well. We do not do well as a team. So really, it's a team effort from up to down. Mm-hmm. And and in that metaphor, let's say, who who's the coach or general manager in that? Is that the EHR or is that the overall mission and values of the institution or, or what, what plays the coach role? You know, it's each and every of us need to be coach. Each and every of us need to. We have team captains. And then each and every of us really need to come with, with that right attitude to win the game. Because, because we are here for those reasons to to win that game, to provide best possible care, and to help people and teach them, and 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 be part of the great institution. So, so, coaches. I don't know. I think each and every of us are really well motivated players, and coaches in our case really help us more to kind of see the big pictures and maybe give us a good good understanding what is coming ahead you know how the changes in medicare will change this how the changes in the health field will change this how what we can how we can align our things better should we buy more hospitals should we do this i, I see that their role is kind of on the on the next level i don't think that we have one direct coach sitting with us on the bench but i see more maybe front office kind of looking around and telling us what is the landscape for next season or season to come Hmm. I'm going to throw out technology and the, the future of medicine out there. And, and what are some of your 
what I say, um, fears and what are some of your excitement and, and things like that as far as um, new technologies, uh, AI, um, machines, you know, anything that makes your job easier but also enhances the patient experience and also what are, what are some of the things you see as, as uh, technology will never replace? Uh, you know, some of those things, of course, are, are part of the world which is changing. And, of course, if we want to survive, we need to change with that world and be, and be part of the new world. Uh, artificial intelligence, of course, through different algorithms, through different protocols, in different ways how the, the system will work, is not, it's not a new thing neither for us as a system, neither for medicine, but it's also the level how much we can use that because patient also do not you know we do not need to be treating all tech savvy people in country we probably have more people who are not tech savvy who are not comfortable with some uh, online stuff or at least in my scope of world uh, who usually have guardians who usually have people helping them so so kind of go both ways you know need to be something what is accessible for them and something what is accessible for me uh, for example if you got email from a patient, is that really the right way to answer somebody concerned, or it's maybe easier to meet with somebody and talk in a person and try to resolve that? Mm-hmm. You know, so so kind of it's a question. It's it, it go both ways. Part of huge part of medicine is 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 really personal contact and in our ability to to connect to to have a human interaction with someone. You know, our text messaging your physician and having text messaging back will be really adequate response to everything. You know, maybe if that text message is I'm bleeding and your my my text message back is go to ER, that you know that probably will be <laughs> will be okay. But I think then then kind of more than that, probably it's it's challenging. I, I'm I'm for human contact. I'm for for probably having that technology to speed up scheduling process, allow you to to enter our scheduling system and said I'm kind of urgent and I want to see my physician today and and then that schedule allow me to reorganize some less important things you know cancel this podcast or no, <laughs> no to show up and, and to do the right things mm-hmm. but uh, I think that would be right right way of technology I don't think then replacing human contact replacing physician replacing uh, train of thoughts I think that's a concerning in some way yeah, I think especially in your field in, in psychiatry and behavioral medicine that you always have to have the human element yeah. um, involved. And, um, to that end, uh, how how do you support more interaction with rural communities? I know a lot of uh, programs try to go out to where there's less health infrastructure and go meet the patient where they are what are some of the things that you guys do to yeah do we have telemedicine and telemedicine is of course especially telepsychiatry becoming very very uh prevalent due to num due to very small number of psychiatrists due to prevalence of psychiatric illness in every community you know we cannot really say the psychiatric community is just prevalent the psychiatric illnesses are prevalent just here and not somewhere no psychiatric community the psychiatric illnesses are everywhere and definitely need is there but smaller communities unfortunately do not have enough capacity to have their own psychiatrist or to organize clinics or or different capacities so telepsychiatry really becoming bigger and bigger we as a department uh, are providing uh, telepsychiatry to 
Wake Forest uh, emergencies in Wake, uh, Davie, Lexington. And of course, it's a chance to grow that even more. Or that will be daily clinic, or that will be ability to really see your regular psychiatrist on a regular basis, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so I think it's a huge possibility to increase that service to much higher level and make it much more uh, uh, successful in delivering needed care to our patients. Mm-hmm. Are you seeing any trends in, with, with your patients, especially in the uh, patients that come with depression? Um, what are some of the overarching themes, if there are any, that you might see that, um, you know, our modern world uh, might have an effect on? I mean, are, are, are the, you know, the age-old causes of depression, are they, you know, still prevalent? And what, what, what new things are you seeing, I guess is what I'm trying to ask. Uh, let's start with good new things. Let's let's put that way. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, just two weeks ago, actually, FDA Federal Drug Administration approved brand new medication called esketamine for use in in depression. It's something that's been used in anesthesia as anesthetic for for many many decades. And uh, Jensen, part of the Johnson and Johnson, actually was able to put that uh, medication into uh, into nasal spray and completely exclude uh, IV drug or um, needle sticks and stuff like that. So that will open completely new door. Uh, I'm not paid representative by any way, shape, or form, and mm-hmm. do not have any <laughs> no disclosures. <laughs> no yeah. disclosures, really. I'm just I'm just sharing new informations. So this is brand new for for us, brand new for world of psychiatry. So we need to see really how that will that will show. Like everything else, after the first initial excitement is kind of settled down, we need to see can we open that clinic? How that will work? How many patients we'll see? How long they need to stay with us? How successful is? But really opened a new door. It's kind of in years, uh, field of psychiatry uh, did not got any exciting news like this one. So we are very, very happy with that. Well, yeah, let me jump in there because I'm, I'm very familiar with the maps.org uh, research in the Bay Area and, and some of the things they're doing with psilocybin, MDMA, ibogaine, uh, even uh, DMT, ayahuasca, and stuff like that. And you hear a lot of uh, I guess laymen talk about the and, and anecdotal evidence of results with that treating PTSD and other uh, you know addiction and things like that. What are your thoughts on? You know, uh, ketamine unfortunately was misused for for long. It's a subs- it's a controlled substance level three, meaning then cannot be really given on prescription. Cannot it's really very restricted access to medication, but. As, as many of those restricted medication find their way into the street and was used as a recreational drug, Super K or K. And, uh, you know, people people had visual and, and uh, visual sensation which are changed. They will feel that they're floating. They will have some different experiences, but we really not use it for those recreational effects. We use it for decrease in suicidality and improvement of their depression. So like like lots of those other things which are kind of in some gray zone, you know, we we as a medicine we want to help people. And whenever those medi- whenever those things become more challenging and you're seeing some some concerns about that, we we of course need to stop and not not harm 
hurt people because lots of lots of recreational drugs cause lots of irreversible harm to people. Uh, drugs, cocaine, uh, opiates, of course, heroin, lots of those medication used to have or had some medical use. You know, cocaine was was prescribing in, in dentistry for, for many, many years to prevent bleedings and decrease pain in the gums. But it's not used in that way. It's used in much higher dosages in used in used and, and cause more more harm. Same as steroids. You know, if steroids are prescribed to to people with with uh, asthma, they can definitely save their lives and help them. But if you have bodybuilders who are using those steroids just to increase their mass, body mass, go to completely different direction. They're using much higher dosages. They uh, can have some psychotic features. They can have some irritability. They can go to completely different direction so so you know most of those compounds which have psych psychiatric or psychoactive activities definitely are worth uh, looking into uh, examining working with putting them in a proper 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 uh, steps and really seeing what we can really find and really helping people why people are drawn to them mm-hmm. must be something what is there but we just need to take them out from uh, from that criminogenic society put them in the right ways and and really help people in some way not to not to take advantage of, of vulnerable people and make it worse on contrary to actually see what what those substances why people are drawn to those substances what is good in them and how we can use just that good in them and put those bad things aside do you think uh, people are drawn to substances or they are just drawn to escaping some devoid of something missing in their lives. Because I've heard the phrase, the opposite of addiction is social connection, not sobriety, <laughs> but social connection. And, and you know, in this day of smartphone use and social media, which actually I find make it stupider and less social, um, people are, are seeking, I guess, they're, or they're missing something, whether it's meaning, whether it's uh, occupation, whether it's a pursuit, a hobby, or something that distracts them, something that provides pleasure that's natural versus unnatural. And You know, humans are, are social beings, and we definitely choose to, to be with friends, to be with families in all times. The biggest, biggest uh, punishment was really to... To send somebody out from his own city or his own village, so you will not have friends, you will not be able to talk to people, and you will kind of be alone. Alone. After that, we invented prisons. We invented people to be placed in some uh, seclusion, so you will not have social connections. So definitely, we need social connections. Is is meant to have social connections just through Facebooks or or internet or or sending messages or text messages? Probably not. Mm-hmm. You know, probably all of us are 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 drawn to to storytelling and sitting around the campfires and talking and, and doing something and and having a social interactions. You know, when you go for a nice party and you sit with people and talk all night long and enjoy and laugh and and, and then you're driving home and you think, wow, that was great. I wish I can do this more often. Mm -hmm. Rarely we'll send 100 emails one day and said, wow, this was great. I wish I can do this more often. You do not get that positive interaction, I think, from from just getting parts of of interaction. This is just a superficial, very uh, limited way how we interact with people through emails, text messages, Facebooks, or any mm. of those. Yeah. Um, you mentioned prisons. I think that's a, a big issue in, in our country is that um, 
not only is mental health stigmatized, sometimes it's criminalized, uh, especially addiction and, and things that that causes. Um, you know, what, what I don't know much about or anything about really uh, the state of mental health and psychiatry in our prison population. Do you have any insight on that? Uh, we have a special forensics uh, department in psychiatry with Dr. Blanks, Dr. Kramer, and uh, we, uh, forensic psychiatry is kind of subspecialty and mostly is helping in uh, court process and court proceedings and evaluations. And of course, part of that is treating people who are under criminal penalties. Uh, most of those are very, uh, very strongly regulated by mostly federal or state laws. What is amount of care, which medication will be prescribed, how often will be. So, like every big system, it's it's less unique and less personalized, but more more as uh, prescribed. Uh, telemedicine, for example, becoming uh, bigger and bigger in prison systems for different risk, which uh, one-to-one evaluation will bring, uh, safety reasons, uh, travel time, uh, ability to establish better contact. So prison population, definitely, it's a big big, uh, uh, risk for developing more mental illness than other people, developing more addictions, also having more medical illnesses, uh, having more self-injurious behavior, trying to have some secondary gain by being transferred from prison to hospital, expecting that they will have a lesser uh, treatment and easier time in a hospital. So definitely it's not a, it's not a, a population without medical risk and medical needs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so going back to something you said earlier um, about not knowing uh, that you would end up in psychiatry and behavioral medicine, um, what are some of the things that you see in in residents and and medical students who do want to? Is there um, is there a characteristic that that's common among those people? So I'm, I guess I'm teasing out for the audience is is like what if you're interested in that field? What what are some of the traits or characteristics you might uh, I have pleasure for last four or five years to be faculty sponsor of psychiatry interest group for, for medical students, so I really have personal chance to meet and, and discuss kind of some some stream, streams and thoughts with those enthusiastic young people, and and that's really is privilege of my job. Uh, in my world, that's the best medical students we have in our school. Absolutely, all of them choose to go to psychiatry. <laughs> uh, no, I, I really love I, I love my my students and and I I really enjoy working with them. Uh, those are people who who are compassionate. You know, all of all of our medical students went to med school because wanted to be compassionate, wanted to help. But psychiatric suffering is is different. Uh, you know, if you if you see. Uh, person who who fell in front of you and broke his arm, broke his leg, broke his shoulder. It's it's so natural to come and help and and try to help him and and make, make him comfortable. Ask him, does it hurt or how I can help you? What I can do for you? On the other side, if you if you see person who is who is distressed, who is walking on the street, talking to himself and and cussing and cursing and spitting on the floor. You know, first reaction is not to come close to him. First reaction is to cross the street, not to look to him and, and walk away. You know, it's it's almost uh, it's it, it's really 
next level of compassion wanted to help that person, wanted to, to kind of come next to that person and said, wait, here it's a glass of water, here it's a glass of this, let me help you, let me see what I can do for you. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so, so I really think the people who want to be psychiatrists, I, of course, as a psychiatrist, I think very high of them, and I'm really happy then, then in the last couple of years, we was able to increase number of people applying for psychiatry much more than, than before, actually, 400% increase. Uh, and, and I really see that that's a great accomplishment of our clerkship in my department, working together and and really trying to intrigue those young people, showing them what's a, how rewarding psychiatry can be. So we're Wake Forest Baptist Health. Um, just a question about faith and and how much or if any uh, faith and and a notion of a higher power out there how important that is to in your practice do you find I mean the patients the doctors everything is there is there any part of the an underlying or overarching uh, uh, spirit there I should say you know faith and in religion is probably as old as the world or older as the world is depends how you want to how you want to see that uh for for people who have faith who who have community praying for them who have beliefs everything is usually easier medical illnesses life stressors they they feel then it's reason and purpose so that they're usually easier group to work with uh on the other side we have a you know, AA meetings, and we have people with addiction who really uh, came through 12-step program, understanding then their God, then their, then their health and their well-being is a, in a, are in a hands of higher power, and that's really part of the program. Some people have a big problems with that, so we also have rational recovery, which do not agree on that. So we need to respect. And people can have faith, and people do not have faith, and people want to talk about their faith, and people do not want to talk about faith, and they are just comfortable uh, feeling that nature is the faith, and blue sky is the faith, that uh, love is the faith, and, and we just need to recognize that people, that we cannot love somebody more because he is Baptist in a Baptist hospital, or he is Jewish, or he is Orchard or Christian, or he is... Hindu or whatever he is, mm-hmm. we need to love them the same. We are here to help every people because that's what we chose to do for for living. If if their fate is is something what will help them get better, we have chaplain services. We want to help them. We we have people who want to talk to them and who want to help them, but but we cannot really see them differently for for any reason. Mm-hmm. We we need to love every person the same. Yeah, I agree. That's great. What advice would you give to uh, those who might be considering going into medicine and or counseling and or behavioral health uh, areas? Uh, Behavioral health or medicine or psychiatry or, or, or really helping people, I think it's extremely rewarding. Those people try to resolve their problems for a long period of time by themselves, then with friends, then with loved ones, then with parents, then with neighbors, then with best buddies playing pool together or going to soccer games or, or going to football games. or, And, and, and they came up in position, then, then those problems are still there. And all of a sudden, you are somebody who have ability to help somebody resolve problem which been there for many 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 years you almost have ability to take torn out from somebody's foot and that person feel relief 
So it's a wonderful, rewarding experience helping people who really are in need of that. So uh, take time, take effort. It's it's like any job in medicine. It's not easy job, but it's extremely rewarding. We we need to put lots lots of effort to be able to do those jobs. But once when you do them, it's really paying back absolutely all efforts which you put back, just seeing that happiness which you can bring back to people. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned a couple of things, the broken arm, which you can obviously help someone and have an immediate effect on relieving their, their, their pain and, and helping them fix the problem. And we do have, uh, all humans, I think, suffer from the called-in uh, the health coach training is the writing reflex. We immediately want to correct someone's bad behavior. So tell me a bit, little bit about uh, how you coach and how you teach people to be better listeners. And, and also in context of the office visit, which, you know, what is it, 11 minutes with, and half of that's the EHR. You know, how do we become better listeners and, and let the patient know that we're we're, we're authentically involved with their issues. And that's really where, where that technology coming back. You know, we, we need to find a way that that office visit really need to be our personal time. They need to be something that you're getting undivided attention. Then I will do my absolutely very best to listen to you and, and try to help with advice, with, with suggestion, with maybe medication, which can help, or maybe just simple advice what can be done which worked for so many people before you but in this moment do not sound like a good idea to you and maybe I will spend extra five minutes discussing that and explaining and showing maybe we'll give you a chance to do that our technology can be better can we just record that visit and keep recording in some way instead of typing the note or that would be sufficient and completely prevent me from sitting and typing and preventing you from looking in back of my back and 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 back of my head while I'm typing versus sitting and talking to you so so listening coaching it's not really exclusive for behavioral health need to be need to be part of every doctor's visit i i I recently got patient who was really severely depressed and and in a serious suicide risk who went to the who went to his uh, vet because of his dog and vet actually listened to him talk to him and referred him to us and probably saved his life so it's mm-hmm. not just physician it's not just psychiatrist on country all and each and every of us need to to really be good listeners need to help mm-hmm. people and do our best what what kind of tools do you, I mean, I know about SBIRT and motivational interviewing, things like that. Are there other tools that you use in a, in a typical setting where you're trying to figure out the best way to help these? Sure. We, our residents are actually very, very fortunate ones because we have some great counselors working in our department and teaching them that. Of course, starting from, from Dr. Scoggin, our interim chair, with Dr. Sebastian Kaplan, who been superstar in our in our med school and our director of our counseling then we have uh, dr chris rodriguez steve rapp i don't think i need to say more about him or dr Penzine. uh really people who who are amazing and our residents can teach from best you know learn different things things different uh, training have one-on-one supervision i i think we as a as a department as a as a wake forest department uh, of psychiatry 
are very in tune to that, and really we see that medications are important, the ECT is important, TMS is important, but human word counseling is is really what it is. That's great. Okay, we're going to switch to some personal things here. Um, wow. Since you've been in the South, uh, what's what's the best thing that you found about about this area? Wow, about Winston. Probably 10-minute commute. I think that's the best. You cannot be that. 10-minute anywhere, that's the best thing ever. Now the 20-minute commute. <laughs> now it... <laughs> yes, yeah. that's true. Is there a road that's not under construction here? Um, okay, so what's the strangest thing you've found about this area? I don't know. For me, probably sweet tea. Still, it's still <laughs> complete enigma. You know, why would somebody drink cold sweet tea? You know, <laughs> I just don't get that. It's, sorry, sorry. Sweet tea, and and then which reminds me, what what's your uh, favorite food since you've been in this oh, area? I'm 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 eat and potato guy. So so okay. I'm very easy to please. Enough okay. meat, enough potato. <laughs> simple, yeah, you'll do it. Simple man. Now, yeah. finally, uh, tell me about this car you drive. Oh, come on. We do not have enough time. <laughs> we do not have enough time. Well, give me time. the cliff notes. Yeah, I, 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 I have a hobby with old cars. I have one Studebaker Golden Hawk from 1956, and I have Hudson Hornet from 1952, like in Doc Hudson in movie Cars. And, and I think really that they... And that and that's really biggest part of my optimism and all this good mood which I'm bringing with myself is is really driving those old good cars. Uh, occasionally, of course, people will be surprised when they find my nails being a little more dirtier than they should, and I have some like nails from kind of hitting myself or or red knuckles. But you know that's that's part of enjoying old cars. That's right. You can actually go under the hood and do stuff. Exactly. Recognize the parts more stuff. often than other people do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And keep me out of troubles. You know, I'm in the garage enjoying my life. It's always good. Well, we're going to end this soon. I just wanted to give you the last word and tell me what, what what gives you hope and optimism for the future of humanity. Wow, of humanity. I think that, I really think that, that hope is then then the new generation, millennials, coming with some different values, which are, which are shaped, I think, in some healthier understanding then then people need then then this world is for everyone then we need to share that then it's more uh protection of the world protection of the forest protection of the of decreasing plastics decreasing uh, pollution so i hope really then then that then that turn will happen then then it's not really profit anymore then it's not just achievement then we need to be better to each other so that's really my hope that then that will as a cultural move change then that will not be moved from medical school or from or from Winston-Salem no then that will be generational change and generational shift so I really hope the new young people will be better to earth and better to each other than we are to to earth and each other that's great and I want to thank you again for coming on the podcast if you'd like to find out more about our friend Paige here, you can go to wakehealth.edu and type in uh, Gligorovich, which I'll spell out, G-L-I-G-O-R-O-V-I-C. And you will see his great star ratings and great comments from his patients and uh, staff and colleagues. So, again, I appreciate you coming today. Thank you so much. It was my real pleasure. Thank you.